Of course, the way some of these cranks are talking and writing now, you'd think that everybody had to look after everybody else. Community and all that nonsense. Take it from me. A man has to mind his business, look after himself and his own... It wasn't disgusting, you know. It's disgusting to me. But the time will soon come when if men will not learn that lesson, and they'll be taught it in blood, fire, and anguish. I don't believe it. I won't believe it. Live. This is the awkward part when no one actually playing a proper introduction. <laughs> so, who's everyone's least favourite character? Who do you think's the the worst, the most immoral? I think Gerald's immoral. I really do not like Gerald at all. That is no secret, though. Gerald for me, definitely. I think Absolutely. Gerald's arc is the most interesting. Why? I compared Gerald to Kylo Ren. Have you seen Star Wars? I hate Star Wars. Okay. Carry on. <laughs> uh, Kylo Ren, spoilers to anybody listening, because it's in the film, but it's been two years. Um, he's the son of Han Solo, and there's this moment, he's, he's evil, and then he has this confrontation with um, Han Solo's dad on this bridge, and you think he's about to, he's been wrestling all, all film, he's going to turn good. And what he ends up doing, he ends up killing his father and throwing him off, off the bridge. And so they dangle your emotions enough to make you just believe there's a hint of goodness that he's going to turn. And that's what they do with, what Chris does with Jerry. So that bit where they go, oh, sorry, I just realised that I just she's re- dead. Yes, yeah. I just realised Dash, take it in properly, Dash, she's really dead. And you go, and he leaves and he's quite shaken. But then he comes back and it's all about now the magic trick with the photograph. And he stops calling her a girl, he starts calling her she. He still and he starts saying, didn't use the name though, did he? He still called her she. He does say she, but the idea of how do we know it was the same photograph he switches to. And so he starts off by dehumanizing her, then he sort of rehumanizes her in the middle, and then he, ready for this, re-dehumanizes her at the end. And I think that's, it just makes it, it's the most interesting arc, because rather than being steadily up, steadily down, or, or stagnant, he does have a lot of movement in his arc, I think. I, uh, the, the thing I struggle with, really, is with Arthur Burling in that, is that his, um, his daughter has been cheated on by Gerald, and he accepts that once he thinks, oh, well, it might not have been the same girl. Oh, it might not have actually happened. He And he, he's with Gerald, sort of saying, oh, Gerald's right. Gerald's right. And, and, and he's standing next to a, a man who's cheated on his daughter. Well, I think Gerald's viewpoint, um, which Berlin jumps on board with, because they are very much older and younger echoes of each other mm. in a lot of ways, um, is the idea that Gerald's trying to find that giant reset button the end of the play and he offers the ring back mm. and he's trying to go he says everything's all right now Sheila and there's a whole list of things that aren't all right I mean Eric's an alcoholic and he's had a, he's gotten a girl pregnant and she was turned down for, for assistance and Gerald's admitted he's cheated on Sheila and everybody's sort of hating each other but he's saying everything's all right now well and he's trying to regain control isn't he because when he first gives the ring um Sheila says, it's the one you wanted me to have. And at the end, he just assumes that he'll be able to give it back. And it's to show how much she's come on as well, that she says no. Yeah. Yeah. 
But going back to Mr. Burden, you're right. He choo- he chooses to side with Gerald because it's it's the man's world, isn't it? And men yeah. can do that. Men, yeah. They're double standards of men and women in relationships. And I think that's why I find Gerald the most despicable because he can have an affair with a woman and not be changed by it at all. But that's her whole life ruined. It's, yeah. She will not get anyone to marry her if anyone finds out, which they will because it's a small town. Mm. So and she's done. She's finished. And when he is called on, he has that quote, it was over and done with last summer. And that's too over and done with. Both suggest these distancing finality doesn't count because it's so far in the past that he's, you can't use that to touch me anymore because it's, it's finished. I don't understand why you're upset. It's over and done with. And it's interesting when you link it back to Mr. Burling and the whole man's rules kind of thing that when Sheila calls Gerald and the fact that last summer you hardly came near me, uh, Sybil says, you'll have to understand when you get older that, that businessmen yeah. have responsibilities. And so I think we see that Gerald very much is the echo of Burling. This is something that Sybil has sort of had to learn how to compartmentalize in her life. And therefore the implication is, will Sheila be like her mother uh, who's gone through this cycle, we think, before so, I think Gerald is the um, the ideal of that time frame. Yeah, and I think that I think Alderman Megaty in the bar is Arthur, isn't it? Is to say Arthur's generation also go to the bar. It's, it's like accepted behaviour from the wealthy men that all the generations are there. So they can't say, oh, I saw I saw Arthur in there. So Alderman Megerty sort of represents that generation. And it's an open secret because Sybil goes, Alderman Megerty and Sheila goes, everyone knows Alderman yeah. Megerty do, yeah. does this in kind of a Harvey Weinstein yeah. kind yeah. of way. Yeah, and he tries to stop, doesn't he? What, he tries to stop them talking about it because he doesn't want it to come to life. And on yeah. that note, uh, similar to that, Gerald's always trying to push Sheila out of the room when it's coming through and Gould even says, and you think young women ought to be protected from this news. Well, no, it's not that he should be protected from the news. He's trying to protect her from his own guilt. Yeah. And if I get her out of the room, I'm not protecting her delicate ears. I'm protecting myself from when this comes out because I can't have Sheila in the room when that happens. Yeah. But so part of that is the double standards as well of how oh, women sure. were treated across the classes. So you've got Oldman Megaty going to the bar and and using women and sleeping with the prostitutes there, but, but Sheila's not allowed to hear about that. So mm. women from different classes are, are treated completely differently in that whole hypocrisy of society. Like with um, Eric, when he says, well, what am I supposed to do? I don't want to sleep with one of those fat old tarts, but this girl was young and pretty, so and I don't, you know, I'm too young to get married. So Priestley's just exposing that whole hypocrisy, isn't it? Well, mm. you know, you weren't allowed to have sex outside marriage, but people did. So what were people supposed to do? Yeah, I think um, it's, to, it's to show that men essentially had a free hand, isn't it, to do whatever they wanted at that time. And the, the, the women the, of the wealthy families just kind of accept, meekly accepted their role and were, were blind to it, really. I think Sybil... Ignored it, didn't she? She, she, she? It never occurred to her that these things were going on. She, she blindly ignored it, and Sheila was kind of set for that same role, wasn't she? Until, until she, her eyes were open to it. Well, especially the point where even Sybil—I forget what the part is—but she answers a question on Sheila's behalf during right the play, where it's something like, "You, you know, I did, don't you? You know, I did." And, and Sheila says nothing. Says, of course she does. Mm. Of course she realizes it. So it's interesting that the attempt to recreate the older generation in the younger seems so pervasive. And it's still, I mean, it was debated in Parliament yesterday, wasn't it? It's all kind of going on at the moment, sexual harassment that's going on in Westminster now. It's still, you know, mm. it's said about old man Megaty, whatever his Joe 
that she only escaped with a torn blouse. Mm. Whereas it, it's happening now, isn't it? It's nothing. Nothing's no. really changed. Yes, so has it changed with um, the upper classes? Those privileged in society, privileged, do yeah. they still act however they want to mm. act, yeah. and are they? Are Prince they more Charles is expected to have a mistress, mm. and he, Prince Charles, did not want to be the only Prince of Wales who hadn't had a mistress, or didn't have a mistress. It is interesting considering that that. Ghoul, I think Ghoul's really quite lenient on, or light, on Gerald, as opposed to some of the other characters in, in why, the play. Why, why do you think that is, though? Why is he light on them? And is that then why the females tend to dislike Gerald more? Because he gets away with it. Maybe. He seems to get away with it with Ghoul. He doesn't really attack Gerald, does he? I think there's two reasons. I think it's that, um, I just lost, number one, he's an outsider. He's not, he's not, he's not a burling. He is outside of the family. But secondly, I think it's that thing where even Ghoul has to say you did make her happy for a while. And he's the only character who actually does provide her some sort of joy. And she says in that note, there'll never be anything as good again. So she does look back fondly. And I think even if it was intentional or unintentional, if it was selfish in his um, actions um, or purpose, it still had a byproduct that she was happy and wasn't suffering as much as she was with him. Of course, you remove that. And what does that do? Doesn't that make it worse? Does it make it? Does, I, I think so. But he is—he is easier on Gerald. I disagree with him on that, though. But I think that's maybe as uh, it's kind of post-feminist world now. Whereas he was writing it in the nineteen forties, mm-hmm. I think Gerald's the absolute worst. Well, wait, wait till we get to Eric because I got some viewpoints on that. <laughs> <laughs> um. Eric's quite threatening, isn't he? Because he. Threatens to make a row to get into her flat, doesn't he? Into her flat. Yeah. He was in that state when a chap easily turns nasty. That's quite interesting, that, because when, when you teach that, the students often just go past it and you say, you imagine if, if you said to me, did you have a nice weekend? And I went, well, I got myself in that state where I turn a bit nasty. And you'd think, what? And he almost says it in a throwaway, as if, you know what, yeah, it's we'll expected, do that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, as so it's, it's acceptable and expected behaviour of somebody that you, you have a certain amount to drink and then you become aggressive. And it's, it reveals quite a lot about him, I think. Well, it is interesting that um, I was having this conversation with my class and actually in one of Miss Jones's classes, Mrs. Jones's classes the other day, was uh, the concept that why do we forgive Eric? Because we do. We do forgive Eric. Time the play is over. We're, we're 100% with Eric. I think um, that's possibly because it, he, he's, it, he says... He's sorry. He's he's, he's with the, he's with Sheila. The remorse, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And that's enough. It's, it's it's a really interesting question. I mean, because we said you know we kind of all go. Well, although he says I was in that state where Chuck kind of gets nasty, we do kind of go. Well, I feel sorry about it. And he was drunk, and look, his dad picks on him, mm. and we do forgive him, which is like he easily does the most atrocious thing. I guess it's the most atrocious act because it's questionable. Well, it might be rape, isn't there? There's yeah. That that's argued at the very least. Well. It's coercion. So, so it could be the worst. Intense coercion. I think yeah. it is. I think it is unqualified the worst. But I, I guess he tries to make amends. He he steals the money. He offers to marry her, and he steals the money. So he does try. There's retribution there, isn't there? He's trying to make amends he, for it. He gets the idea of responsibility, which I think is a lot of his family gets the idea of accountability. They don't have the idea of responsibility. He goes, it's my child to provide. Of course, he goes about it the worst. Again, it does probably the second worst thing in the play by actually committing theft on a repeated basis in some weird Robin Hood gone amok plan that he's going to single-handedly 
restore the, the scales back to where Rigby Well, that's the only one that is an actual crime, isn't it? Mm. That he, that's the only one that will yeah. lead back. That's why Berlin's so upset. He's more upset about Eric's theft than anything else. Well, it's kind Eric's of, theft will lead back to him. It was kind of interesting that, that he says, I would give thousands, yes, thousands, and then a few minutes later he's saying, I want my 50 quid back. And you're going to work yeah. Yeah. until I get it. That's really interesting. Yeah, within a matter of minutes, he's gone from I'd give thousands to bring it back to uh, he's, that 50 quid, you're going to work that off. And similar to what we said about Eric does own up to it. I mean, he speaks about without qualifiers, right? I, the fact remains, the fact remains, I did what I did. And he, and he stops there. Unlike Berlin, who will go and speak for 10 minutes or something like that, he speaks in very small sentences, um, doesn't try to defend himself extraneously, mm-hmm. and just owns everything, we guess we'd say. And I think that's why we do forgive people if, they, if they're prepared to take... Yeah, I think so. I think in any story, it's where the character ends as a person that make, that's our abiding memory, isn't it? You get in any 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 storyline, somebody can be atrocious and appalling throughout the story, but if by the end they've learned, then we kind of forgive. That's human, isn't it? It's also interesting because he does show growth in the sense that he's, he's always running away, right? In I think it's Act One, he leaves his yeah. the room and goes to leaves the dining room and goes to his room. <laughs> Then in Act 2, he runs out of the house, and he's drinking, which is another form of running away, I'd argue. Mm-hmm. And then, But then in Act 3, he comes back, and he shows up, and he stands his ground. He stands up to his father. He says, I don't give a damn now. And then you know, he finally, rather than run away from his dad, he stands up to him and says, you know, the kind of ch- man a chap could run to when yeah. he gets into trouble or something along those lines. You always see Eric grow You're up, not the kind of father, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. We watch him grow up. Mm. You know, mentally, don't we? And emotionally, I think. Which is why we have a kin more to it. Yeah, and also Ghoul kind of undermines Berling, doesn't he? By telling him, oh, he'll be back. You know, and so whenever Eric leaves, he, Bert, uh, Ghoul says, oh, don't worry, he'll be back. And you know, he, he's, he, he, he makes out he knows his son better than he does. Mm. And it kind of gets That's under Berling's skin. And as soon as he comes back, and as an audience, we know everything that's happened with Eric and um, Eva Smith. And he comes back, and you could explain this, this big explanation for what he's done, and he just responds with, you know, don't you? And just, that's it, and nothing more. And it's a really powerful return. Um, and just the certainty and confidence the inspectors, A, sussed it out, shared it, and doesn't try to, again, excuse his actions, just... Which is the opposite, again, from, again, it's very much the opposite from Berlin, and that Berlin would have qualifiers and explanations and justifications, and just goes, you know, don't you? But I think what, what you were saying about um, Gerald is true of Berlin, isn't it, with the reset button thing? He, they both think we can just go back. So Ber- Berlin says, oh, I should still get my knighthood now, so that, that should be fine thinks there won't be a public scandal, it could all be kept under wraps, and also kind of figures that um, Sheila will marry Gerald and the Croft-Burling link can carry on. So they're both more interested in that sort of getting back to where they were at the start rather than learning anything, aren't they? I think that's quite an interesting thing that Gerald, because I think students often aren't quite sure where Gerald sits, are they? You've got the two generations. Generations It's quite clear. Which is perhaps why he does, you know, you're saying... But but he definitely ends up with the, yeah. with, the bur- yeah. with the mystery well, he's, of he's the one who makes the phone call I mean we tend, yeah. we, we, we tend to think these big arrogant behaviours are an Arthur Burling thing 
Uh, so much so that when I was teaching the group, uh, I wasn't even, I had to go back and check to see who made the phone call. But it is Gerald who makes the phone call to the hospital and he's going to fix everything, just in the same way that Bernard's going to fix everything. Um, and at the start of the play, um, the students are really quick to pick on that Berlin's an absolute muppet and just gets everything wrong. And what I think is forgotten too often is every time he says something, you've usually got uh, Gerald there going, yep, he's absolutely right. There's nothing else you could do. I'd have done the same thing. And I think because of his elevated social status, we kind of put Gerald, he's not nearly as bad as Berlin. Well, actually, everything Berlin is saying, Gerald's going, I would have done the exact same thing. As much as Berlin is trying to mimic and parrot Gerald and Gerald's family, there's a little bit of the show, they're not that dissimilar anyway. Gerald's just maybe a little bit more suave about it mm. than Berlin is. Can we talk a bit about context, do you think? Because I think the students... Um, sometimes... This is going to be kind of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll just say, you know, they kind of struggle with the whole... With the two contexts. How, how, how do they bring the context in and make it a smooth thing that they discuss? You know, because you've got... You've got you know that it was set in 1912, and they get that um, that was before the First World War. I think they will understand that. And then you've got written in 1945, so all that's gone on between there, and that um, Priestley has lived through two world wars, so he's experienced it all, hasn't he? he I think he served in World War One and was injured. I think. I think yeah. And and uh, lived through two world wars, so he's experienced it all. I wonder. Uh, you know, the, the, the students get the idea that um, in 1912 the wealthy were like this and the poor were like this but it's how, how they bring it in I suppose so that they, they talk about it in a smooth way that is relevant to what they're discussing. I think it's remembering partly that context isn't doesn't stand on its own, it's the writer's ideas yeah, in relation to context, it's the big why isn't it why, why did Priestley want to set it in Edwardian times, what was he saying about that time from his war experiences and why is he saying to the audience let's not go back to this let's not make Britain unequal like this again because in 1945 they weren't like that were they it was everyone had come together the officers and the you know had been together in the army and the soldiers so the the classes had had a lot more integration and he's kind of shining a light on how it used to be and saying well let's not go back and the women had done the land work and done all the um, munitions work and their 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 role had changed and how they perceived had changed i think quite significantly in that um they suddenly um men realized that actually women were perfectly capable of doing all these things and i think yeah it must have been a time of um when people were really pushing for equality yeah, because there have been so much change, haven't there? You know, like you say, with those two world wars, and especially the second world war, how I mean, you've got to remember that you then starting there was unrest because the soldiers had come back, so there was bitterness about the wars and what had happened there and what they were returning home to because some of the women had taken over those jobs and weren't going to give them back as well. You know, so there was lots of different factions happening in 1945. Yeah. From that point of view. So I think students are quick to hit on socialism. I think they're quick to hit on capitalism, but they part the bus kind of in those two places. And I think the feminism route isn't extraordinarily enough. I think Chrissy's a massive feminist. Uh, you have to look at the number of times Sheila tries to barge in to a man's world, and how many times she's told to leave because this isn't the place where you should be, and she keeps going, "No, I actually do belong here." And if we kind of rank the rally of the characters, we go Sheila without question kind of tops everybody's yeah. lists. 
that's not a coincidence. It would be easy to go, well, the young characters are the best characters. Yes, but why is Sheila even higher so than Eric? And I think it's that message about if we're going to change, we're going to get equality, and we're going to have this this new, this new brave new world. It, it, it can only happen if women are equal members, if not at the forefront with the agency and authority to make decisions that matter to everybody. And she doesn't leave, does she, like Eric? I mean, Eric's got similar, very similar lines to Sheila, but she's there throughout the whole thing. She's... Mm. Yeah, she's and she tries to get pushed out, as we said before. <clears throat> they try to push yeah. her out, don't they? So it could be the idea that they're trying to push that symbolism, the, the yeah. symbolism of women and the role of yeah. women at, back and out yeah. as well. Re- re- again, simple. press the reset button to go back to what yeah. we were. I think that's yeah. That's well, simple. I guess she's a role model in that sense, isn't she? For women still retaining that position, like you were saying, that they that the soldiers had come back and, and they were changed by it and it was about them retaining that position that they got to and not kind of going back, just yeah. running the house. Mm. So what do we think about um, Ghoul? If, if, if it's a question I'm always asked by students, is, is who or what is Ghoul then? And I think it's always open to interpretation. Some people think he's the ghost of Eva Smith's father. Right. I mean, I don't really care who he is. No, me either. I, yeah. He's a kind of moral conscience, isn't he? He's the voice of Priestley, isn't he? Absolutely. Yeah, oh, definitely yeah. the voice of Priestley. That manifesto, that last big speech, the fire and blood and anguish, yeah. the one that so all the students should know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so much rhetoric in that. If you were to pick out all the rhetorical devices in there, there's absolutely loads. It's packed, isn't it? And that is that is Priestley's message. I mean, that is exactly what he wants the the, the audience to walk away considering. I mean, the veils dropped. He speaks in a way that's very unghoul-like. Actually, throughout, Ghoul's not prone to big speeches. In fact, he's very blunt and um, pragmatic with his words. But in that last one, like you said, all, all the language features are just jump up through the roof and it's absolutely this is this Priestley's manifesto as much as Ghoul's manifesto well I always feel like he's addressing the audience because he says but just remember this and that's to the audience I think as much as to the the characters that are there it's it's, uh, it's the, what Priestley wants to tell the audience before they leave remember this this is what everything is about and I think you know that's when Ghoul leaves and that's when Priestley kind of leaves the characters to fight mm-hmm. it out amongst themselves and he's almost just reaffirming values, isn't he? He's preaching to the converted in a way, because the country was a lot more socialist mm. with Clement Attlee becoming Prime Minister and not Winston Churchill. So he's kind of reaffirming the values that the audience already hold, I think. Yeah, I think, I think it's very interesting, isn't it, that you know, uh, Britain won a war with, and Churchill is remembered as a great leader, mm. but people actually couldn't wait to get rid of him and, and not return to those those days of war and you know essentially really you know we've had a large period of not not peace internationally we've been at war in various places but you know we haven't had that global war so you know maybe people have learned from it over that period of time you know know, there's concerns now obviously that you know (laughs) things are a little bit it's almost like people forget and I think it's a good um, good message to remind everybody that if you if you forget these fundamental things it can easily happen again so is this play just socialist propaganda I think it's more moral than that isn't yeah. it I yeah, think, yeah I think, I think 
I think it's it, yeah, it, it's obviously a socialist ideal, but I don't think socialism necessarily has to be a political standpoint. It could be a moral view, can't it? That to be being good to people is is um, a more positive way to live than being being selfish and um, un, ungrateful. I think each character in the play bouncing off that has the idea of is it is a crime still a crime or is or is wrong still still wrong or bad if you're not accountable for your actions. If you can get away with it, is it still a bad thing to do? And Eric and Sheila go, yes, it is still bad, and the older generation and Gerald say, no, it's it's, it's about accountability, not responsibility. And the younger generation go, no, it's about responsibility. Whether they're accountable or not. Eric says he was our police inspector. All right, and Sheila says it's you two who are being childish, not trying to face facts. And the fact that no one's going to publicly out them, at least or so they believe at that point in the play, doesn't stop um, Eric and Sheila from trying to um, change, trying to change their parents, definitely changing themselves. Um, whereas everybody else, yeah, is trying to return to the status quo. Yeah, and I think um, he, he's trying to say that responsibility falls to everybody, mm-hmm. and. That's no matter what your wealth. I think he highlights the wealthy, doesn't he? Because they're the people that society, even now, trust the most. The wealthy are put in positions of responsibility they're or put find in themselves. Yeah. But, but you know, trust them the most. but the, but they are elected and they are put yeah. in these positions. A lot of them. And I think he's saying, you know, you must be aware of everybody has this responsibility. I think he just targets the the wealthy because they're the people that we think are. Uh, least likely to do these sorts of things. Well, I think it's also clever in that it allows the audience some distance from the people who are more or less being put on yeah. trial. Because if it was working class, how does that do for the audience's perspective? We'll be more likely to become defensive or support those that we see. Or if we see the privileged sort of having it turned on them, do we enjoy that? Is that a bit more persuasive as a result than if we had a working class family out there? But it's, it's more newsworthy, isn't it? It's like even today, if, if somebody wealthy or in the public eye commits a crime, that's headline news. If somebody from a ne- poor, neglected background commits a crime, it'd probably just get a byline in a local paper. I think yeah, it creates headlines by being people that it's sensationalised. It's just people we, we would yeah, normally respect. We would expect, yeah. Society yeah. would expect us to respect more. But more people time. like Sybil Burling, who says things like girls of that class... Yes. And you deal with an audience who, at least today, if not when it came out, would go, well, that probably actually applies to the vast majority of people who are going to be watching the play. All of a sudden, that's a clear us and them distinction, and it's it rises the ire of the audience, certainly. when I mean, No one comes off as more privileged and elitist, I think, than Sybil Burling. Uh, whereas if she was working class, I don't think you can... It's a lot harder to turn the audience against someone so almost one-dimensionally. Yeah, she's not very nuanced, Sybil Burling. No, actually, also, <laughs> I think that's your fault. I think um, both her and Burling, they're, they're they're caricatures, aren't they? Yeah, they he goes so far with their behaviour, their extremities that they, I think, they stop being real credible characters, and I think they are caricatures. That would be my criticism of it. Mm. I mean, she she is the one, isn't she, who kind of stands up to Ghoul and thinks that. She she won't be caught out by his questioning like the others have. She hasn't doesn't done anything wrong. It's interesting in that Ghoul uses a different approach in each character to get them to confess. Um, and for Sybil, he gets her to kind of what would you have them do then? Mm-hmm. And she does the whole blame the father speech. Mm-hmm. I would make yeah. confess publicly. It's the father who is to blame. And the whole time Sheila's yelling, "Stop, mother, stop!" Because yeah. Sheila's got it sussed out. 
And then at the end, when we find out that it's actually Eric, that's when she does her big, I don't believe it, I won't believe it. And she totally negates the entire speech she just did, because is there anything that would be more shocking to, or more painful to Sybil Burling than have to, have to publicly be shamed in the fashion that she has just laid out? Yeah, and, and she, her daughter was trying to warn her. She was saying, he's trying to give us rope to, the rope to hang ourselves, and they just ignore her mm-hmm. and say, she's proved to be right, um, Sheila. She, and I like how Priestley raises the audience to a better level than because we realise before she does, don't we, as an audience. So therefore, he's kind of flattering us, saying, "Oh, you're you're kind of smart because you've worked work this out." Yeah. Whereas, whereas she's kind of stepped behind, so he's kind of automatically levelling his audience above yeah. his characters. I think the girls of that class thing is quite interesting because we all make those judgments and I think it's challenging us too about our, our own judgments of people. You know, there's, you, you, I, I, I couldn't say that I don't judge. You know, we all do it, don't we? If I, you, I don't think anybody does. <laughs> I don't judge. And the play could easily be making fostering the same judgments towards the entitled. Yeah. Mm. We could say people of that class because yeah. the whole play's full of judgments yeah. about the entitled. Yeah. yeah. Actually, by doing that distance, actually, it almost gives the impression the working class are the good, honest folks of the yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, there's no mention of... Because, I mean, could there be a more angelic figure than, than, than Eva Smith? She was a good worker. She was young and she was pretty. And she was dedicated. And she was she truly fell in love for him. And she has absolutely no flaws. Yet we see the upper class just as foul human beings. Some of whom find redemption, but they are foul. And even... You know, who else do we see? We see, we see Edna for about two seconds. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the working class as a whole have a, actually a really, really positive life. So if, we, if, if one wanted to argue the socialist propaganda, I think I'd just talk myself into it a little yeah. bit. And also the reality is that Eric and Gerald, they'd be dead, wouldn't they? Because they would have fought in the two world wars. And they, yeah. they wouldn't, you know, they people of the upper class sacrificed themselves for their countries just as much as the working class Absolutely. did. Absolutely, yeah. So, Gerald got married, would he have to go to war? Yeah. 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 Married yeah. Him? You sure? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, can't really get away with that. <laughs> you, 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 you dodged the, the first wave of the draft if you were married. A lot of people got married to try and avoid that, actually. Really? Yeah, they, they, they took the single men first. Because the married men had families to provide for was the argument. I'm sure after that happened, they did actually take him in the second wave. But anyway, this is a little bit of... This, this, <laughs> this Canadian history is brought to you by Mr. Goodman. Did you know I'm from Canada? <laughs> so you're American. One <laughs> <laughs> uh, on topic of Sheila, I just want to get this out because I do like this point. Um, Sheila is the first one to figure out what the inspector's up to. Uh, she's the one who goes, he'll give us the rope. She says, I hate to know how much he knows that we don't know yet. You'll see, you'll see the repetition... And the certainty. I'm just going to read off this page I don't have to my left. Um, and then also, it's interesting how, just like the inspector asks a lot of questions, and the word sharply is always used to describe, not always, but often used to describe the inspector's questions, or the doorbell, or the telephone, because it cuts through the, the, the pretense yeah. that the Burlings have. Sheila has both those traits. Sheila is often referred to as speaking sharply. And mm. Sheila ends up asking a lot of questions at the end. In fact, she's mirroring a lot she of the behavior of yeah, the inspector. Yeah. So I teach my class. And then Sheila, whether you believe in the, in the ghost-like properties of the inspector or not, Sheila's, in a sense, like the real inspector or the next generation of the inspector or the inspector's 
uh, byproduct, what you're hoping to see. So if, if, if Gould's big speech is the message that he wants the audience to walk away with, she was the person he wants us all to walk away being. Mm. And who's going to be the audience are going to be people, you know, young middle class people like Sheila and Eric, aren't they? That's going to be the audience at the time. So that's, he wants that message to be, look, you guys are the saviors of society. You're going to go on and make the world better. Yeah. And he actually says, doesn't he? He says, um, um, you've made quite an impression on the girl and girl says, we often do on the young ones. ones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's an old joke in Canada that, you know, everybody's uh, left-wing or liberal-minded when they're when they're young, and then when you get money and house mm. and things like that, you, you turn very, very right-wing. I think there's the idea constantly, even with Gerald Bean, once you're part of the establishment, you're probably not going to give that spot up. Once you have privilege, you're not going to... So the idea is to get them before they've got it. And you can see no more different than the last election of the Labour vote and how, e- not easily, but how successfully they wooed the young vote and how... Um, militants the wrong word but how passionate that generation became in the last election mm. um, whereas it still kind of votes on those lines look at Brexit Brexit if it was under 30 or whatever the vote was some ridiculous number for Remain but it was the old mm-hmm. voters who sort of managed to sway it towards yeah. the Leave side so. same in America as well isn't it with Bernie Sanders if you oh, got Bernie Sanders. the young vote then it would have been a very yeah. different place now yeah Donald Trump got in actually on the old, on the old white folks. middle class yeah. kind of vote, appealing to really jingoistic tendencies. But so. Jingo, he's a fake. But Jingo, he's a fake. <laughs> Jingo's a biblical reference, isn't it? It's a Jesus thing. So I don't know yeah. if there's some deliberate kind of um, anti-Christian rhetoric there from Mr. Birthing. That's a deliberate thing, or whether it is just a turn of phrase. I don't know if he's blaspheming or not. There. No. Is there any other biblical references? Uh, the, the fire and blood and I mean, fire and blood and anguish. However, there's no reference that Priestley was overly religious it's, whatsoever. So it could just be a reference to to the two world wars that were to come after that moment. Yeah. And the morality play is a very you know it's an English historically English thing. It goes back to our earliest dramatic forms was the morality play. So it's. And then it mixes that kind of whodunit genre as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I, I always think it's, it's at the end there, it's, uh, or at Gould's final speech when he says, if, if man does not learn that lesson, he will be taught it. And I, I think <clears throat> what he's saying is if, it, within the confines of the play, if, if the cast don't learn the lesson, they'll be taught it again. Yeah, another world war. So, but, within the, but I think if they don't learn the lesson of um, responsibility, they'll be taught it again. So when they don't, when they all go, oh, we've got away with it, and he, so um, you've got two wars coming. Yeah, you've got away so, with it. And also, we they haven't learned their lesson, so that inspector is yeah. coming back, and it's so yeah. and it will come back yeah. until you learn your lesson. And it yeah. is over and over again. At the start of the play, we start off with Burling bragging to Gerald how he's lying for a knighthood if they stay out of trouble. Right before it ends, they start talking the knighthood again if they stay out of trouble. Um, just this brazen certainty in the attempt to give back the ring and they clearly have not so everything going from the first attempt with the telephone the front door ringing sharply with the telephone ringing sharply and the curtain coming down so it's really interesting actually how mm. 
it does just that. Yeah, but it's, it's this repetition, isn't it? Because the lesson isn't learned. So the lesson isn't learned, so they have a war. Then the lesson isn't learned within the play, so the inspector comes back again. So that's how I kind of see that It's also interesting that at this point, you've already had two world wars, which could be the message of we already, in, in, the, in, in society, we didn't learn it after the first one. You want proof? We had the second one. Yeah. And the second one leads directly out of the outfalls from the first one because we didn't learn what was going on. We didn't correct enough and look what's happened. So we're going to say it again because we definitely don't want there to be a third one. Because the gap between the two wars is really small, isn't it? <laughs> you, I often forget that you know, when I used to learn it when I was in school. But you know, to, you would live, a lot of people lived through both. Yeah, 20 years. Some people yeah, served in both. Nothing, yeah, they did, like you said, they served in both. And it was called the Great War, wasn't it? Yeah. Because it was the war to end all wars. Yeah. Yeah, like I say, the next one came really, really quickly yeah. because they didn't learn that lesson. And life has been terrible. If your whole life had been spent basically at war, it's been awful. They were recovering from one. I think the 20s were quite a nice time, weren't they? And then they, they, they there was a lot of... Um, celebration in the 20s I think a lot of leisure time and people had a lot of fun but then it sort of got built again towards the 30s and you think and then rationing went on for a long long time after Mm, the war didn't it so people people had a horrible time for a large number most of their life I imagine was was in awful conditions so I think people were ready to say we need to stop this this is no way to live it's interesting as such but the setting for the entire play is just a dining room Mm. Because a dining room was a very middle class thing. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't have a dining room. The fact that the whole thing takes place in this symbol of privilege. Yeah. And all the props that go along and with that. The cigars, the port, and as it's said, it's it's large and comfortable but not cozy and homelike. Mm. So although they have all the stuff, there's no warmth there. So even the, the physical makeup of the stage uh, foreshadows the conflict within the family, which is a really interesting point. Mm. I'm not sure we've talked about, but look at my list, I don't think we've talked about Berlin really in any detail. Oh, we have really, have we? It's interesting watching Peaky Blinders and looking at the start of all the trade unions in the 1930s and how, you know, because when this was set, there were no trade unions at all, so these factory owners could get away with treating people however they wanted. The wages weren't, you know, there was no kind of equal pay for men and women. There was no, um, what do we call it, the wage thing now? Minimum. Minimum wage. So obviously nothing like that. No, I think there was holiday pay and sick pay then. Don't know. No, because that would have actually come about with Priestley, wouldn't it? Part yeah. of the welfare state. It was part of the welfare state, so they had the nothing 50s. like that. If you didn't go to work, you didn't yeah. earn any money. And if you're poorly, you didn't go to hospital. Well, yeah, if no, if you could afford to do it. Too. Yeah. yeah. But I think it was, it was almost like a racket, wasn't it? It was portrayed in in um, the play as a, a bit of a racket, really. He, they underpaid the women so they couldn't afford to live, so they were forced into prostitution, and then those very same wealthy men went to use them yeah. as prostitutes yeah. in the Because evening. the men and women could be doing the same jobs, yeah. but the men would earn more than the women. It was almost like self-serving, wasn't it, to keep them yeah. um, suppressed so that they were forced into into a life of prostitution where they took advantage of them again. That's yeah. a, that, I think that's why they show that bar and why Megatee is Slightly linked back to Gerald. I mean, he goes to the palace dolls to find a prostitute, mm-hmm. ends up finding Daisy, he kind of puts her up in a place, but is that just another form of cheap labor? I mean, is she just a absolutely long-term 
prostitute yeah. in a because sense. Because he wouldn't ever marry her because she's a girl of that class. So there's, he's got no intention of marrying her at all. And therefore she's got no ability to marry anyone else. Whereas Eric calls her what was a good sport. Mm. Yeah. A good yeah. sport and very pretty. I think he, I mean, you know, we're going back to Gerald, aren't we? But we've seen we'll back. <laughs> talk about him forever, can't we? That Daisy was his last fling. He knew that. That was his summer before he knew that he had to conform. I'm sure he, it wasn't his last fling because a married man could have as many well, yeah, flings as he as, wanted. As, yeah. as a time when he would be able to get away with not being seen all summer. Yeah. Mm. That that idea that his last yeah his last summer of yeah yeah, 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 yeah. not not um, yeah because obviously yeah. he's going to have. But had his mate Charlie Brunswick not been going away, there would have been no affair because he would have had no way to put her. Yeah. Yeah. But I think if we're, if we're talking about Burling in respect to I think it, it comes back to my distaste for Burling because he he forgives all that because he thinks he can just reset it to... Yeah. Um, yeah, I think his knighthood and public scandal and the business collaboration is more important to him well, than the fact that his daughter has been badly treated. I mean, yeah, he's just he seems way more excited about the potential merger between Crofts and, and Burling and company. Um and that the attachment links itself to when he finds out about Eva Smith. He calls her I mean, the wretched girl's suicide. And I had something else and now I've forgotten it. It was another quote. But but is, but, but love is never mentioned, is it? It's an engagement party and love oh, is no. never mentioned. No, marriage was about Social arrangements with your parents, business, wasn't yeah. it? A oh, business right. transaction. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't necessary to marry for love. And people didn't really. Everybody seemed to try and move up a peg when their daughter got married, mm, didn't they? Because, yeah. yeah. um, as like Burling says, oh, you know, uh, yeah, I was the same when I was when I was courting Sybil, you know, I, mm. yeah, and he, he, he's worried that he's not going to be good enough for Gerald's family. And that tension is really interesting, actually, because you look at the times that Sybil tells Burling off. It's because you've got two things at play: you've got the patriarchal society, which very much still exists, where he is. Uh, should be the, the head of the family, but then you've got Sybil, who's clearly the more um, socially, superior. socially superior, yeah, thank you, uh, member of the family, and is often having to reproach Arthur on, on, on what he says and, and how he does things. Furthermore, I mean, Burling loves to make those long, long, long speeches, of which I can't relate whatsoever. Um, yet it's said that, much like myself, he's rather provincial in his speech. So actually, the more that Burling talks the more you hear that provincialness mm. in his speech. So his attempts to sound really quite eloquent and like he belongs in this society, his very voice itself, according to the stage directions, carries a constant reminder how he doesn't belong in that society, that he's not there. He's actually a bit of a fraud. Mm. I'm not... No, I don't think it's a, it's a fraud. I think it's he's new. It's the middle classes came about for the first time in 1912, so that's what the middle classes are. They've... They're people who've come up through the ranks, you know. They're, they're not the landed gentry that they were the upper classes. It's the it's a new social class, isn't it? And I think that's why he's got that provincial speech. But I think that's what I mean about him being a caricature. I don't because I think if historically, I'm sure those greedy businessman factory owners existed, but it also wasn't true. I think those factories did a lot more to raise the working class up in society mm. than actually it did harm to them. So I'm not sure I agree with Priestley's kind of representation of Burling. 
And also there were lots of kind of altruistic, philanthropic people, weren't there, like Kellogg's and... and yeah, uh, tied to Salt. There was yeah. a Salt Air near, near Bradford who built entire uh, um, housing estates and factories for their and, workers. And improved their yeah. workers' conditions mm. hugely. Yeah. So, so lots of people did really good things for society. So... Um, yeah, but again, it comes back to this notion of a caricature, doesn't it? That he's he's, he's portraying the worst characteristics mm, of yeah. that type of person in that situation to to absolutely show them all at their worst. I think the the very worst type of um, capitalist that you can imagine, with the the least amount of morals. I think it is all exaggerated. He is the, like the fat cat of capitalism, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. The so there you go, go write your exam. Lady <laughs> <laughs> quotes. Now, oh, come, come, you can see that, can't you? You all help the killer. <laughs> and I wish you could have seen the look on your faces when he said that. <laughs>